Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bunmy Chronicles podcast. This is your host and creator of this podcast, Randy Kim. We are now heading into February and less than a month since the inauguration and a year since COVID-19 hit the United States. So I hope that you're all staying safe and doing what you can to protect your loved ones. Trigger warning for this episode will contain topics of PTSD, trauma, suicide, and other related traumas. For this season for a theme process, I interviewed Khmer American community leader Savannah Devon Bove back in November. Savannah was born in the refugee camps after the Khmer Rouge and lived his early childhood years in Chicago before moving to Lowell, Massachusetts, where he has been living with his family since then. Savannah has been involved in nonprofits, specifically with the Cambodian community in Lowell for years now, and is currently serving as the executive director with CMAA Lowell otherwise known as the Cambodian Mutual Assistance Association of Lowell. We spent time talking about his upbringing, including his early traumas of his family's struggle during the refugee resettlement in both Chicago and in Lowell. Savannah talked about being raised by a single mother and the traumas that she has experienced and how this has informed him to take better care of his mental health. We talk about what the Khmer American community is like in Lowell, which is the second largest Khmer community after Long Beach and his current leadership role with CMAA Lowell. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you have any feedback, feel free to comment on my Instagram at bunme underscore chronicles or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Season 4 is sponsored by Red Scarf Revolution. Red Scarf Revolution aims to bring awareness to the tragedies, atrocities, and cultural destruction the Cambodian people endured from 1975 to 1979 under the Khmer Rouge regime and how that period impacts us today. With that awareness, Red Scarf Revolution advocates the science, art, music, culture, and language with designs that incite the resiliency of the Cambodian people. Visit their website at www.redscarfrevolution.com to check out their merchandise line and to learn more about their work. Or follow their Instagram at red underscore scarf underscore revolution or on their Facebook. Hi everyone. So today I am joined with a dear friend of mine. His name is Silvana Devenpov. And before I bring him on, I am going to share with you uh, a little bit about his backstory. So Silvana is currently the executive director of uh, CMAA, known as the Cambodian Mutual Assistance Association of Greater Lowell. Born in the Surakao and then later relocated to Khao Idang refugee camp in Thailand after the Khmer Rouge genocide, Savannah and his family moved to Chicago, Illinois in 1981 as refugees. After settling in Chicago for seven years, his mother discovered that her sister, the only surviving member of her family from the genocide, was living in Lowell, Massachusetts. They eventually moved and resettled in Lowell to reunite with their other family members. Through the Community Service Employment Program at the CMAA, Savannah was hired at the United Teen Equality Center, UTEC, in 2001, where he would work there for the next 12 years. With his passion and determination, Savannah's goal is to give back to his community that raised him. Savannah currently serves on the board of directors for many organizations, such as the Greater Lowell Health Alliance, Jean de uh, Jean d'Arc uh, Credit Union, 
the Lowe Development and Financial Corporation, and more. He is also recognized by Eastern Bank as Advocate of the Year in 2017, Young Professional of the Year in 2019, and one of Lowe's 100 Most Influential People in 2019 by the International Institute of New England. Today, Silvano lives in Lowell, Massachusetts with his wife, Liana Cushy, and their three daughters. Through his Khmer American experiences, he hopes to bring people together from all backgrounds to learn about the rich Cambodian culture while running an organization whose vision is to provide opportunities for individuals to become economically self-sufficient and to be active and engaged leaders in their community. So uh, I just want to say that we connected through uh, other fellow Khmer American community organizers on social media a little over a year ago. Uh, you've also been an avid listener of the podcast, and I really, truly thank you for your support. And I've also gotten to learn more about your work with CMAA Lowell, uh, where you have shared your organization's work with the Get Out the Vote campaign, uh, unfortunately with the recent pandemic struggles, and and the important uh, 2020 census uh, for your community. So I want to say welcome to the show. It is an honor to have you on. And really, I want to start by asking, like, how have you been throughout this year uh, with the pandemic and the aftermath of the election? Hey, Randy, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you on your show. Um, <clears throat> and you did a really amazing job reading my bio. I was like, wow. I never really had anybody read my bio to me like that. I read it in myself on my screen, but... It's really nice to hear from a fellow Khmer person to read it um, as well. Um, I've been uh, I've been doing okay, you know. I think during, when when the pandemic started, uh, my family and I um, realized that this, this is such a great opportunity for us to really just uh, soak in the time we have with our little girls. Um, for audience members out there, I, my my um, my third child, a daughter that was born, she was born the same my my birthday, so we share the same birthday. And so <clears throat> we, this past uh, pandemic uh, months, we used it to kind of watch her learn how to walk, well, learn how to crawl first, uh, walk, eat solids and things like that. And I missed that with the first two children I have because of work and because of not being able to see them almost every day. Um, so yeah, I think, I think family-wise, I think we're doing, we're, doing, we're doing good. We're keeping each other mentally happy. Um, going outside as much as we can to make sure that they enjoy their lives and they made that they feel like they're part of the community in that way. Um, in terms of work, I I can I'll be honest with you, it was challenging for sure um, when March came along and the pandemic was uh, was shared. Um, but it you know it gave us an opportunity for us to kind of uh, as they say put our Zoom heads together and kind of think about CMA, our indefinite future and um, how to reinvent ourselves to make sure that people that we're working with um, are getting the services that they need. So yeah, I think, I think we're definitely in a better position than I thought we would be earlier this year. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And, and also congratulations on raising your youngest. Uh, I think that as difficult as the pandemic has created for so many people, um, you know, for myself, I, I feel like I've turned into an introvert. I've been more reclusive, but it's also giving me better focus. It's allowed me more time with school and it's allowed me more time with having to just kind of step away for a moment and not feel like I need to be present at every public events. And and I think that, you know, sometimes the pandemic really as as really difficult and consequential as it has been, I also like to think that in some way it has allowed for moments like yours, you know, to watch your uh 
to watch your youngest grow um, and to be there where you really couldn't do it with your first two. And I think that's a very important uh, lesson uh, to, to uh, think about the time that you have with your family members, but also think about where you would like to reimagine yourself um, moving forward. So I would like to learn more about CMAA Lowell and what really can you share about that work? And, and also, um, Lowell, Massachusetts, interestingly enough, is one of the highly populated uh, Cambodian American communities in the U.S. aside from Long Beach, uh, Philadelphia. I think it might be ranked second if, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, it's second, second, yes, for sure. correct. Um, but yeah, what can you really share about CMAA Lowell, about their work and uh, what it means to the community? And, and really, how, what would you describe the Cambodian American community over in Lowell? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for those questions. Well, first of all, I think uh, it's really nice to be able to talk to somebody that has become introverted to watch someone wearing a nice hot pink shirt with a purple hat on. To all you listeners out there, my 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 interviewer now has some interesting colors that's keeping the interview live and and going well. So thank you, Randy, for expressing yourself that way. Um, Although I've been very boring, I'm not gonna lie to you. This year, I have really just worn nothing but hoodies and sweatpants. I haven't worn jeans since March, to be honest with you. So I kind of have completely changed. But although like when we get back to a public event, I'd like to, uh, you know, kind of change things around, so to speak. <laughs> I look forward to your public persona when you come out um, uh, when the COVID slows down. Um, so yeah, so for, for individuals that, that are learning about CMAA for the first time, uh, CMAA was established as a nonprofit back in 1984, and um, we started to help acclimate Cambodian refugees that were arriving to Lowell. And the main purpose of the job, I mean, the main purpose of the organization was to make sure that community members are getting connected with the Lowell public school systems, getting the resources they need from the state, um, making sure that they learn, get the licenses, become citizens, get more information about opening up stores and shops and things like that. So kind of like the all-to-go shop um, for Cambodian refugees. And I can tell you that myself, myself, when I moved to Lowell from Chicago, we went to CMA for, you know, my, the, that's the first place we would go to to get support because we know that the staff at CMA would be able to get myself and my brother signed up for school with my mom to make sure that my mom would um, learn about the places where she can get jobs or can actually get like benefits from like uh, the state and things like that. And so, so we are, um, we are that organization that did that kind of work for a long time and we did it for a while. We were, we were um, funded by the government and by the federal, you know, by the state for um, a long time until I would say about 2009-ish or two. Uh, Cambodians were no longer recognized as refugees. And so a lot of that funding from the federal government was cut. And I think this affected many other uh, similar organizations to CMAA as well across the country. But basically the federal government uh, considered Cambodians non-refugees um, status after 30 years. And so a lot of that money was cut from our operation, operating budget. And so it really just, it really placed the organization in a way, in a position where like they had to kind of downsize tremendously uh, cutting back on programming, uh, cutting back on staff, cutting back on its facilities. And so with that being said, the organization had kind of had to kind of relocate uh, many times to various locations. In the history of CMAA, we've actually moved around, I would say, five times. 
Um, and the location that we're at now, School Street, is the last location that I hope that we don't have to move from um, anytime soon. And the only way that we will move is if we expand to much, a much larger building or even uh, create a, a set of footprint in different locations or communities as well. Um, but we came from a direct service organization provided to, um, providing those services that I mentioned earlier to more focused on bringing the voices that we've helped to have them be heard, meaning that you know, we are an agency, for example, um, that has a pathway for community members. And I'll share with you. So a community member can come to CMA and not know a word of English. Uh, they would sign up for our English classes, which is a partnership through the Fred Advocacy Adult Education Center. Uh, they would get the English courses and then we would help them uh, look for jobs, but also apply for the citizenship. Uh, once they get the citizenship and they pass the test and get, they get naturalized, we not only um, try to attend the ceremony with them, but also encourage them to register to vote as well. Um, once we get them to register to vote, uh, we will educate them about the different levels of government that takes place, not only locally, but federally as well. Like what is the difference between a city councilor? What is the difference between a school committee member? What is the difference between a congresswoman or congressman? What is the difference between a state rep uh, re um, representative? And so when community members are able to vote and learn all of these different assets of federal government or government, they, they understand what, uh, what responsibilities they have. And so they can kind of pinpoint any issues that they want to talk and share about to those specific people that they want to work and communicate with. And so, and then CMA in the past, in the last couple um, four years had also been early voting site. So you look at this, so, so CMA members can actually vote at CMA as well. And so when you look at this path, a community member cannot speak English. And then if they stick with us, they can go all the way to voting for um, their preferred um, candidate that they want to, you know, that they want to um, see in, in, in government level. And so this is the kind of work that we're, we're trying to push and trying to empower. Um, and then when going beyond voting and learning about um, elected officials, we also educate our community members about organizing and different policies that are taking place. Um, I can proudly say that with our, with our civic engagement team last summer, we were able to uh, get three older members of our community to go to the state house in, in Boston and share with them their personal story about surviving the genocide, but also why they think this policy should be implemented in the state. And they shared that in Khmer, you know, they shared that in their native tongue. The, um, the 17 to 18 elected officials that listened to the story were so impressed and so moved by it, they wanted to make sure that they get the full transcripts from our older members community to make sure that they don't miss anything that they had shared. And so that's the power that we want to create within our own people. We know that Khmer people have, and not just Khmer people, but other people that have strong cultural and historic um, history. Um, we come with a lot of stories and we come with a lot of compassion and empathy and commitment to whatever work that we want to get engaged with. And they were able to be a, a place to provide space, to feel safe, um, to give you the microphone when you want to be loud, uh, to give you the stage when you want to present. We want to be that organization. So um, was CMA ever like this in the past? I'm not sure. I wasn't there. I was a recipient of the services, but I wasn't there every single day, hanging out with the team and kind of like seeing what they're doing. But we, did, we do know that when I started this job um, back in 2014, that something was missing. Not just young people, but something was missing. And, what, and how can we spark the energy with the community to make sure that they are out there and being heard? Um, Thank you for sharing this because um, when you talk about the federal funding having to cut uh, Cambodian American 
agencies because they don't they aren't seen as refugees and and it would make sense because when you look at the numbers uh, through the years I mean it had been many years since uh, the Khmer the end of the Khmer Rouge but also what's really important that you point out here is the transformation of these organizations that go from a refugee well you're still serving former refugees but but to uh, go from refugee services to civic engagement work because the Cambodian uh, population uh, has transformed itself from ha uh, coming in as refugees straight up from the camps to having to make that resettlement uh, transition but also transitioning to hopefully what you're doing to become civically engaged to become voters not just first time not just only for the first time but to become regular voters to vote not just in the presidential election but also in state and local races and to be familiar about who is representing their district uh, who are representing their needs from the school board to the park district to the state representative level, city council, uh, those are critical factors that oftentimes our own community is underserved in and not aware about these resources and the people that are representing them. So uh, I think this is such a very important time uh, to learn about uh, the power of our community. and. And to also see our community as an important voting bloc, especially a place like Lowell, Massachusetts. I mean, when you've had people, I presume, uh, representing you that are white and did not seem to care about the population of Cambodians because, yeah, the numbers may not be there, but the votes aren't. So how are you going to um, be at the table when you don't have voters? But uh, also, let alone, how are you also going to have representatives from our community be the voices, not just for Cambodians, but to represent all of Lowell, uh, Massachusetts, or whether it's on a state or on a district, but how, but, um, but making sure that they matter in this uh, completion of this discussion. Yeah, thank you, Randy. And so I kind of want to back, before I answer this question, I want to Kind of go back to the last question because I didn't share with you what the Cambodian community is like here in the city of Lowell, and I and I want to be as general as I can because I my own voice does not represent the whole community. Just to be clear about that, um, but I've lived in the city long enough to understand uh, the, the 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 struggles, but also achievements of our community as well. What's nice about being the second largest community in the country is that we have our cultural presence here. It's huge. Like the Khmer culture, the temples, it's huge here. If you grew up in Lowell, um, it's really hard to miss, like Khmer town is really hard to miss the establishments that were brought up by our, our Khmer brothers and sisters. It's really hard to miss the achievements that have been taking place in our city. And what's different between Lowell and Long Beach, and I use that as, as a comparison, is that Long Beach has a population of about a, maybe half a million or so, I think. Um, and I could be wrong, and please correct me if I am wrong, um, but then Cambodian Americans make up about, I would say, 90 to 90,000 of that, where Lowell's total population is about 110,000, and then Khmer people make up about 35,000 of that. So per capita is like really tight and like, you know, um, potent, right, the, the population here. 
and and and, I, and I've been to Anna and, I, and I've been to um, Long Beach, uh, California as well, and Khmer Town there too. And and the business district is like spread out. Um, and 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 California is huge, right? Like it, all the land you have, in terms of being able to like learn from the East Coast and what not to do in the East Coast, and have everything all tied up. Um, so that that's the beauty about the West Coast and its infrastructure is you're able to spread out and and you know um, and and set up things in grids. Um, but the Khmer community here is very is very powerful. It's very beautiful. It's it's uh, people grew up here with a lot of Khmer friends. People that are from the Latin, Mexican, Hispanic community. People that are from the Black, African American community. All at least know one or two Khmer people. Anyone that comes into the city um, that's new and they um, they see an Asian American person. The, we tell them that it's most likely a Cambodian American. It's a Khmer person that's li that's living in the city. Um, and throughout all these years, um, Khmer people have built a lot of power in a way where uh, it's not recognized as it could be. And so when we talk about politics and talk about political representation, uh, Lowell itself has, you know, has achieved that in some ways. And so when you, when you go back to 1999, uh, Bu Rithi Ng, he was the first ever city of Lowell um, elected official. Um, and then we had Buvesan Nun. Uh, Buvesan Nun was the second ever elected, but also he's the first ever to top the ticket in any election, like to beat the other non uh, Khmer people on the ticket as well. So he received the most votes. And then, and then Bu Dominic Lai, he was the first ever uh, person of color to be elected as a school committee person. And that was back in 2017. And then we go back to Representative Roddy Mom. Uh, Representative Roddy Mom, he's, he serves on the 18th Middlesex District, and he's the first ever, ever in the country Cambodian American person to serve in, in the state representative state level. And then, you know, now we have Bong Vanna Howard. Bong Vanna Howard just got recently elected as the first ever Khmer American woman to serve in a state level as a state representative. And so Lowell, in terms of politics, is is doing something in a way where we're bringing up our people and having and being representative, and that's what I and that's what I recognize between the West and the Long Beach and Lowell. Um, I'm not saying anything bad about Long Beach, but I'm saying that we some something Lowell's doing something about raising political power, where Long Beach has a lot of access and opportunities into the arts, into the culture, into the growth. Like Long Beach has all that as well, you know, and so, but also. While I'm live here as well, I also want to congratulate Dr. Sueli Saro for being the first ever elected Khmer American woman to city council at Long Beach. So that's, you know, congrats to her. And so I remember when, when that when that announcement was made, I just like was so happy from the East Coast. I was like, man, like our Khmer people is is starting to do some major shit. I mean, excuse my language, uh, major stuff, uh, and, and politically. Um, but with all that being said, it wasn't easy growing up in Lowell. Lowell had city councilors that looked at us, looked down at the Khmer community, you know, that called ICE to deport us, that went on the newspaper and said that these Khmer gangs are like, are an infest to our community. Let's get rid of them, you know, and things like that. And so, and then some, and then if you dig deeper into the history of the city, you know, there were, there were systems in place to like, to set up Khmer folks to, against our Latinx and Hispanic brothers and sisters for us to not get along as well. You know, and that caused racial tension in the war in the 90s. And so there were a lot of gangs at that time. Um, and I remember I grew up living in Centerville, which is a neighborhood that is highly populated by the Hispanic and Latinx community. And I would always have to watch my back when I'm walking to Lowell High School, because when you're alone or with another person walking to school and then you see a group of um, 
um, Latinx and Hispanic folks, um, most likely they're going to try to chase you down and try to beat the crap out of you because Asian and Hispanics just didn't get along at that time. Not just to, not, not, not just, uh, to gang and turf war, but if you think about the inner roots of our systems, systemic racism took place here. It put, it put, other, it put other colored people or groups against each other so that people on top can remain in power. You know, and so, and so these things took place, and you have to, and 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 when you're working in a community organization like this, you recognize all of these things that take place, and so you do whatever you, you can to make sure that you fight these systems of power in place. But that took place in the '90s, and you know, I lost friends to gang violence. People were in jail through gang violence. People that served jail at that time to now are now getting deported, and so all these things that are taking place is through like the systems that were taking place, as you know, um, Randy. Um, many Southeast Asians were placed in, in, in neighborhoods and cities that weren't the best places for people to thrive in, right? When you're, when you're placed in a community where it's the end of the Vietnam War, the country itself hates Vietnam for what just happened. And then you come into their country and for community members to not recognize the difference between Cambodians and Vietnamese, they're going to call you chinks and gooks and, and all these things to like not welcome you into the community. And then when you add on communities that are high in, in, in gang activity, drugs, um, um, lack of resources, you, you can't expect 90% of the community to come up and be like, you know, superficial lawyers and engineers and things like that. You can't expect that because the environment, as some research, uh, some research has shown, it, 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 it you know, it, it forms you, right? And it takes a handful of special people to like break out of that and to do something different with themselves. And so that's the environment that Lowell was like. You know, Lowell even had an HBO documentary about called High on Crack Street because Lowell was infested with crack and cocaine and people were like using it all the time. And then just like Cambodians came in during that time. And so that's like a slight history of the organ um, of, of our Khmer people in this city. Um, I can tell you that our Khmer people as, as throughout the country and the world that we're very resilient, uh, we're very strong, we're very committed and compassionate about you know, what we're engaged in. And so uh, we are a strong economic force in the city of Lowell. We bring a lot of resources to the city, you know, and we do it together. And, you know, there may be fractions in our own community, but the, at the end of the day, when we look in the mirror, we see a Khmer person, we, we have Khmer blood in our, in our body. You know, we take, all, we, we peel off all of our facades and we deepen down the side, we have ancestral Khmer roots. And so how do we tap into that? And how do we bring people together because of that? And this is just like the motivation of a lot of work that we're doing at CMA too. So, yeah, thank you so much for you know sharing the backstory of Lowell and also about the Cam uh, about the Cambodian community's role uh, with Lowell because it's such an interesting history when you look at it uh, from 1979 and onwards. You mentioned, you know, at the end of the Vietnam War, the racial tensions in America were. I mean, it's still an ongoing issue. Let's let's be very honest here. But but you're coming into a country that was already deepened into racial segregation from the aftermath of racial segregation and with mass policing. Um, and then you also have to consider that our families were coming in so traumatized from the genocide, from the war, from poverty from violence and coming into the u.s into these communities they had no time to heal there was no time to unpack and say we care about you we want you to be safe um it was more like you're gonna be working in a factory 
here's this job two days later, right? And, and for the kids who are growing up, did not have the stable environment. Their parents are already traumatized. They're not coming in speaking English. They're not, the, the transition is quite traumatic in of itself. I mean, I think assimilation, to be honest with you, and I think uh, others will agree, is another form of trauma. It's, it was traumatic for me growing up. Um, definitely traumatic for you. Uh, as people that were not born during the genocide or for some born in the camps, but the residue of our parents and our grandparents' trauma is so embedded in us and how they raise us and how the U.S. public schools view us, how the government feels about us, that we're just like, okay, well, we sh you should be thanking us for bringing you in. There's nothing for you to complain about, but yet it was also the U.S.'s responsibility into this intervention, this so-called intervention, which allowed the government to walk away uh, of when Phnom Penh was being taken over. It allowed them to walk away when uh, Saigon and what happened in Laos took place in 75. So it's, it's, it's a struggle when we have to reckon with that part of history and living in a country that uh, exacerbated that harm, right? So I remember we were talking about, you know, gang violence in another conversation, and I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up away from the city, so uh, my dad was more privileged. Um, he was more educated because he was a U.S. translator, an English translator for the U.S. Embassy at that time. So he had, a, had kind of a heads up, and... Um, but we were living in the suburbs, uh, which is predominantly white, more conservative. And I remember it as a seven-year-old, and I, I'm so glad that we had this conversation. There was one of my teachers brought up a newspaper, and there was a headline. It read, Asian gangs coming into DuPage County. As a seven-year-old, I was terrified. <laughs> and my parents were very scared because at that time, a lot of the gangs from the Southeast Asian communities were targeting families of Southeast Asian descent. And I remember it was like, for me, it was the boogeyman as a child. I was terrified uh, of my parents' safety and my safety. But it also goes to show you that, um, that there was something about the psychological damage that occurred, you know, in the refugee resettlement uh, for these kids who were not able to reconcile uh, with their new upbringing. And, and I wonder if you were able to share uh, your own experiences growing up early in Chicago as you, as you and your family transitioned into uh, Lowell, Massachusetts. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, um, Randy, for your own experience as well. And that's the, and that's, one of many examples of what um, I believe that systemic racism does to our own people, right? It, it, it creates this space and opportunity for people to be up against each other. Um, when a country like the United States is very involved uh, with the reasons why we are refugees in the first place, um, and, then, and then intentionally placing us in situations where it would be much harder for us to grow and thrive. Um, 
that's something that they that they you know not all of the United States, but people that are power that want to stay in power that they thrive on right. They wanna they wanna be able to create situations historically and systemically to ensure that people of color can stay oppressed. And by using the power of media, by using the power of communities, by using the power of being able to shift languages and um, and kind of um, energy about like what people feel towards each other is a goal that they want to have taking place. Um, when you when you talked about your story about the newspaper talking about Khmer people or Asian gangs starting to loot suburb Asian families, when you're in a situation and this is not for everybody, but when you're in a situation that you need to survive and you need to like get things for yourself, you're probably more comfortable targeting the people that you that you identify with first because you kind of know the how they how where they would put their money where they would hide things you know there was rumors back in the day where like some people would hide money under mattresses and stuff like that and you know you would like target people that you identify with and that know that you can probably get away with right um, and unfortunately it had you know it happened to you know um, it, it traumatized you as a young person and other people in the community but what what's really beautiful Randy uh, that you're doing is that like you're sh you're not only sharing that experience about yourself um, to the audience, but you're also using this space to not just talk about the Cambodian experience, but you've I, I, and this is from all the other episodes that you've that you've done, is that you're sharing this this uh, uh, similar stories with between the the the, the Laotian community, between the Vietnamese community, between other Southeast Asian communities, like you're like you're you're bringing it to the table and bring, and building more unity and solidity within our own Southeast Asian community, not just Cambodian, you know? And, um, and I want to like, I don't want to thank you for doing that because, because if we, and, and I'm kind of segueing away a little bit, but like if we're able to recognize our own pride as Khmer people, but also um, um, sharing that same energy with our fellow Southeast Asian brothers and sisters, I mean, I think we'll build a stronger unit, which is a strategy to go against the systemic stuff that's in place. Um, now, in terms of, in terms of answering your question about Chicago, yes. So I was, my family and I were placed in um, the uptown neighborhood of Chicago. I, I think we talked about this at our last conversation. I can't remember what street it was, but um, it was a brick. It was like a five-decker building with like multiple families there. A lot of Cambodian refugee families were in that space. And I remember just like running into, um, running into, um, Black African-American youth in the neighborhood, like, you know, calling us names and things like that. And I remember even my brother, um, he, as a young person, my mother would like work really hard and kind of, kind of give us, you know, jewelry to wear, whatever she could, just as a way to like, you know, some, some, some families use jewelry as a way to like save money or to like, as a bank, as a, like a, as a, as a way to like hold value. And I remember just like my brother running ran into a situation where he had like got his necklace taken from him and stuff like that. And so Chicago was very vague to me because I was, again, I was like, I lived there between one and seven year, years old. Um, and, um, and when I left Chicago, I didn't get a chance to go back until about, I'd say four years ago, back in 2016, 2017. And I went back to that house that I grew up in and it changed a lot. It um it definitely is a much better place to live than what, what I remembered. I remember like when I was living there, they had the concrete jungles where they it's a playground where it's made out of cement and you like go into holes and things like that. Um, but they don't have that anymore, and they have like a college down the street. 
Um, and so it's, um, it's very different than what, what I remember it to be. Um, and I don't think there's that many Khmer people living in that building anymore. But I do know that other families that lived in that building with us moved to Lowell as well. You know, and I remember, and I just like, it's amazing to kind of catch up with these families and say, well, you're from Chicago. Oh, you're from that building. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you know, so we like know each other and things like that. One memorable, one, one story that I can't forget living in Chicago, and this has nothing to do with like my history and racism, is that on the first floor of the building that we lived at, uh, we remember like someone's body, someone, someone died and their body decomposed for like five days. And we, and me and my, my brother and like other kids, uh, my kids, they were like, had this like smell, this like interesting thing, like what the heck is that smell? What's going on? And we later found out that like somebody's uh, body was 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 uh, was decomposing in the apartment on the first floor. Another another um, um, historical event that took place in that same building was that, as you mentioned before, um, families have to work hard to take care of their kids and kind of resettling in a new country, dealing with the trauma and stress. Unfortunately, um, we had a family member. Um, that um, with a mother that had committed suicide when we were at that age. And um, I remember that like, when we saw her before she committed suicide, she would walk on a second floor, third floor, or whichever floor she lived on. And she would just keep walking straight with her eyes straight, kind of gazing. We knew something was going on with her. We just didn't know what, what it was. And then unfortunately, later on, we found out that she like hung herself and her kids found her in the apartment uh, doing that. And so, and that hit us all. And then that, that, that affected us a lot because as young people living in this new country, my, my mom and everything that like finding and, and seeing that, that really is traumatizing in a lot of ways because, you know, it's because um, when they're going through so much stuff in a new country, like, is this a path that we should consider? Is this a path to like forget everything and just let it go, you know? Um, and so I worried that like, I had worried that like that would happen to my mom. And I, I will share later in the interview about, my very personal like situations and traumatic situations dealing with that suicide and things like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was, that was our Chicago experience. You know, it's a, uh, it's a uh, racism and dealing with someone, a body that decomposed on the first floor, but also recognizing our own community member taking their own lives. Mm. Um, so that's powerful. And it's just like, when you talk about having to witness the aftermath of a person's suicide, right. And, it it also kind of goes back to your mom's experience or your your parents' experience with the genocide that this was an everyday experience and then it's continuing on to you in America, right? Uh, your mom also was a single mother raising you and your younger brother, and you also have two half sisters. So, in talking about your upbringing, what can you talk about? with your mother and your relationship with her as a single mother trying to raise you two and also really having to manage the dangers of living in Chicago, but also in as a kid growing up in Lowell, Massachusetts, because uh, I also understand that you, um, that, that excuse me, your mother um, found out about her sister, uh, that she was alive and immediately took you uh, and your brother to Lowell, Massachusetts. So I, I would like to get a better scope of your mother's um, survival or the transition into the refugee resettlement period and what that was like uh, for her and also your relationship with her during that time growing up. 
my mom my mom and i i like first off i love my mom very much um she we definitely had our difficult times growing up and 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 it reflects on what you talk about in terms of uh traumatic experiences and personal choices that she had to make um and to also be um very upfront too um my two half sisters uh that we have in our family are Khmer and Vietnamese and so she dated a Vietnamese person and it's a small portion of my life I don't say small but at least it's a quarter of my life and they were together for about 10 years and they met in Chicago actually and we moved to Lowell together um but um to go back a little bit in history uh, so my mother um as she was escaping the um from Cambodia to Thailand Uh, my mother was on the trail like many other people that's finding a trail to go into the refugee camps and a war broke out between the London army and uh and the and the and the and the Khmer Kham and unfortunately my mom was uh, my mom and her group of people were in the middle of that gunfire and my mom was hit by a bullet and so my mom was shot actually um at the um at the back of her um, knee and the bullet and the bullet um and 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 she was left in a ditch with by her group of friends and uh, my father's army was the one that found her in the ditch and brought her to the camps and then my mom met me you know my mom met my dad that way so they met at the camps and they fell in love and magic happened and i was born and so um and so that's how i came into the world was my mom, my father was the savior of my mother and um because my father was part of the lonol army um he had the opportunity to come to the us first um and so he came he had the chance to come to the US in 1981 i remember november 1981 and i was a little over a year old and um and uh, my brother was born in 1982 in december and unfortunately my mom my my mom and my father my biological father had a outbringing they broke up and so uh, he left us after my brother was immediately born and so my mom had to deal with that um and then eventually a couple of years a few years later she met my um my sister's father Uh, who's Vietnamese and who found an attraction to each other and they were together for about 10 years or so um but throughout all that time um and I and I want to thank him for being there in our lives too as well because he was he didn't talk to me about like sex education he didn't talk to me about all these things he was just, he was there as a uh supporter um for our family and to have to have some sort of stability and foundation um and he left you know they were together but he left me when i was like 15 16 um but um but my mom my mom's story is 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 um is very it's very sensitive in a way where like, i actually don't really talk about this too much uh but my mom dealt with a lot of depression a lot of uh, you know um, a lot of the history that she's dealt with and breaks up and stuff and so my mom um throughout a lifetime had um committed i mean attempted suicide four separate times and um and i remember one of them where she was uh completely uh drunk and um she was with my sister's father at the time and then my biological father decided to come visit us and my um my my sister's father was really upset at that because he you know he just came into life took me and my brother away took us fishing and things like that but he was upset they got into a fight and then my mom um took medicine she took i think either Tylenol or Advil took like a whole half a bottle or something like that and um finding out that she's like choking and like 
he spewed that's all we had to call the ambulance the ambulance on the on, on the spot had to pump her stomach out and so like witnessing that that was like the first that i could remember of her attempting suicide and then as we get older and as, as life got harder um she thought that like ending her life was the way to go and the second time that i remember uh was when she was completely drunk and she was driving in a car with my cousin on the side and then she tried to pull the car into the river and my cousin had to pull the steering wheel to control her and then as soon as she got home she started grabbing a belt and trying to hang herself and so and i was like a teenager and kind of like figuring out all the stuff that's happening and my brothers and i was just like my brothers and sisters and i were like what is going on and so all these things took place uh that had really like you know been traumatizing to my, my siblings and i and um and you know with all that being said i i want to be openly and be and share uh to our audience members that i am seeing a therapist myself i made a i made a personal decision about a month and a half to close to two months ago uh where i recognized that i need i need to have somebody to talk to to kind of process all these situations that took place uh, as i was growing up um to process you know, and learn about why my mom is thinking the way she is, why she's doing all these things, and how can I can kind of, as an organizational leader, uh, continue to be mentally healthy, but also be there for my immediate family, my mom and my extended family. And also, it's, in, you know, in my mind, I'm, like, I'm, I'm working at an organization that's encouraging people to seek help when they need it. And I want to do that myself, you know, and I want to be, and I want to be able to lead by example and, and, and do, and, 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 and let people know that, seeing a counselor a therapist is normal that it's okay to seek for help and that it's okay to ask someone for advice it's okay to have someone that's not your family that's not your close friends to talk life about um and so and, and i'm the only one in my family i believe right now that is seeing somebody but uh i have like slowly kind of shared a little bit about like me seeing a therapist i remember my staff they questioned me they're like questioning each other and they're like is Savannah seeing a therapist? Is Savannah seeing a therapist? And they were all to each other like, why don't you just ask him? Why don't you just ask him? And the reason why they say that is because on my Instagram story, I, I posted a photo, and I know people can't see this, but I'm showing you, Randy, of this uh, Tibetan meditation bowl. And so, um, and I put, and I posted a story saying that, uh, recommended by my therapist. That's like the only thing I kind of like wrote on a photo, recommended by my therapist. And people just like started asking, so, oh, is Savannah seeing a therapist? And so, um, and so yeah so my mom went went through a lot of shit she went through a lot of shit and because of the stuff that she went through it carries on to her children and i can tell you that i do suffer from um sec post-secondary or secondary um, ptsd and it's in and, and i'm and i'm okay to admit that because i know that sometimes when certain things happen and when certain situations come up i second guess it i i i worry about this happening that happening and not living my life to its fullest um, ability, um, my fullest opportunity. And so I know that I suffer from I know that my family are going through that as well. And um, and that I want to be just as open and share as much as I can because I know, I know, and you know this, Randy, that, um, that sharing stories, personal stories is very powerful and it's a way for us to connect in a deep way, but it's also a way for us to let the world know, let people listening know that that it's okay when you need help to seek help. So... Thank you really from the bottom of my heart for diving in and for really sharing 
these very personal stories that you don't normally share to other folks. So it's a privilege to hear your stories. And, and you know, you got me really thinking on, on a level of here because uh, we also tell stories so we can destigmatize ourselves and that we do it as part of our own continued liberation, our own path of healing. And to do healing is to confront those paths. And it's not easy to go into it. And also, I think uh, for our own community, you pointed out that uh, the idea of therapy is very foreign. It seems really uh, a Western concept. Uh, and in a way, it's understandable why uh, our community members feel adverse to seeking that form of therapy. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad that you're taking that initiative for yourself because, I mean, I've been taking that initiative, you know, seeing a therapist, especially since summer, because I recognize that I have anger issues. What a surprise. If anyone knows me, that's certainly not a surprise because I have my fits of outburst every now and then. And I think I get that from my dad sometimes because he grew up having to deal with the Vietnam War, fighting in the army then going into you know the Khmer Rouge I mean here I mean there was so much that he had gone through that I won't you know dive into but needless to say you don't come out ever feeling normal from these experiences of death and death coming at you at every nip of the way your mom having to survive where she could have died at any given moment and having to raise you feeling like as if she must be a failure because she can't provide and keep you safe and your siblings safe. Um, I feel for your mother. I mean, just listening to your story about her really um, moves me. And I, I cannot imagine what that feeling must be like when she is out in the world and no one to really talk to because our community is also traumatized that a lot of them have a very hard time talking about it without shame um without a sense of embarrassment um uh, but there's nothing to be embarrassed about because you know this is the kind of journey that we deserve to heal from and that healing like do therapy do music, do whatever healthy outlets that are available. I encourage people to um, to utilize it because um, you learn more about yourself. You learn more about how you work with others, your relationship with your family, and you're doing yourself a huge favor. And you're also learning to break a very vicious cycle so that it does not get a fact that, that your own children do not get permanently affected by your own actions and the actions of your ancestors, right? I, I'd like to know, what is your relationship with your mother like now and how has she been, you know, since these unfortunate episodes? And luckily, I'm glad that she did not complete those missions and that, that it somehow got aborted. I mean, the, what, the story about your cousin uh, yeah, that one just sends a lot of chills down my spine. I cannot believe that this is what your cousin had to experience. I'm almost losing their life, you know, with your mom. I, but it goes to show you that when the level of of helplessness and this deepening depression 
knows no boundaries. It it can completely cloud a person's judgment and unfortunately have its consequences. But I wonder about your mom now. And and again, you know, thank you for really sharing uh, such a very sacred um, story of your family. You're welcome, Randy. Thank you for for making that space for me to do that. And thank you for asking about her. Um, my mom is to be transparent is is better, but not um, but not great. Um, meaning that she uh, the good thing about what she's her current situation is that she actually has a place of her own to live. Uh, she's been living with either myself or my siblings or since she ever since she ever received um, came to the U.S. So she never had the opportunity to live on her own. And so since last September, she had the opportunity to live on her own uh, through some support from our uh, government. And so she has a nice place that she's uh, overlooking the Merrimack River. And then when, you know, when they, um, if, they, if we didn't have the pandemic this year, she would have been able to witness the Southeast Asian Water Festival from her, um, from her deck to uh, kind of like help her soothe and heal. Um, but my mom still deals with depression and still deals with um, drinking issues and still deals with um, um, using alcohol as a way for her to heal. And, um, and, 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 and she also is not in the best relationships either. Um, and I've, I remember that I've tried to, my siblings and I, my wife, try to do some intervention. And unfortunately, in order for someone to, inter, uh, to take care of themselves, they have to give us the permission to do that. Um, and so, um, but um, I don't want to go on living my life blaming her for what she's doing to herself. Uh, I need to, I, I, I learned to recognize as I'm getting older that, you know, she, she went through a lot in life like many of our other older members of our community. They went through a lot in life. And the best thing for us as their children to do is to be as supportive as possible. Um, it may drive us nuts and crazy whenever she like, is drunk and saying a lot of stupid shit um, and like, you know, saying that she's not worth it. But, you know, my mom, uh, besides all that stuff, when she is sober, she's like a very like loving and kind of like caring mom. You know, she's like loves my children. She loves her grandchildren. She has a total of about five to six grandchildren, you know, and she loves our grandchildren and recognizing that she lives for our grandchildren, her grandchildren, you know. And I remember my therapist kind of telling me that, you know, you know, um, as I was sharing the situation with my mom, that, you know, find out from her, like have these meaningful conversations and just like learn from her what keeps her going, you know, because there's something that's keeping her going. She's in her mid, she's in her early to mid 60s now and, and like find out what that is. And one of them is the, the, for her being able to see her grandchildren when we're zooming her and talking to her and things like that, and just like seeing how she lights up when she sees my 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 my, my girls, um, so yeah. So my mom is not is not in a perfect condition, but she's definitely uh, doing a little better better than before. And it, I think it's because of her own living situation too. She has her own space. Um, she has she she has so. With all that said about her, she's loving, caring, thoughtful. She has OCD, so she's super clean. She hates a mess. Like she like kicks my butt whenever I like leave clothes on the ground. 
or even like dust in my room. Um, so she has OCD tendencies. So she loves having her own space. She makes food for us. She invites us over to go eat whenever she makes food for us. And she feels like she has a purpose whenever she sees my siblings and I get together. Like, okay, you're all getting together at your house. Let mom take care of like the food. Let mom take care of this and that and stuff like that. And so um, her her sober her sober self is, is just a wonderful, amazing, caring person. Um, but unfortunately, she does uh, get into the drinking habits, and um, it, 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 it you know it spirals her to a different direction. And she also has she also has some minor um, gambling issues too. Yeah, I think is, that's uh, unfortunately that's not new to our community. That's yeah. that's a whole. It's an. I mean, there's also a stereotype of you know, Vietnamese and more Southeast Asian elders going to like casinos. I mean, that. I mean, we joke about it, but but the, but it also there lies the, the hidden, greater issues here. And, and again, I really appreciate you sharing this about your mom and and also her ongoing battle, but also being able to see the beauty of her life and how it's affected you as a person and that it's guided you into the direction that you want to become. So in a way, you know, the good things of your mom and unfortunately some of the the devices that she has struggled with in a way has shaped up your outlook and what you want to become. So I, I'm really glad that you shared the complications, but the beautiful ways of how your mom really is as a person. Um, I also wonder about your biological father and your temporary surrogate dad and what is your relationship with them now? Are you in contact with them? And and I wonder um, if that's if if you don't, but and you don't have to answer that question, but do you see yourself wanting to also reconcile from the past father figures or absent father figures of your past, I should say? Yeah. So I, 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 um, when my father left me when I, well, after my, my brother was born, I think I was about three years old. Um, I didn't see him again until I was about, I think nine or so or ten. Remember when when I talked earlier about my mom, uh, trying to kill herself when he came to visit, and so and then after that, I haven't seen him since until two thousand and and ten. And so, yeah, and, and ever since 2010, I've maybe seen him like a handful of times. And so what's crazy is that my father lives in Lowell. Um, he, he, he originally, when he left us in Chicago, he moved to California for a bit, which I later found that I have a half sister living there as well in Oakland, uh, which is so cool because my half sister, her name is Monica, I'm not gonna give her full name, but her name is Monica and she listens to this. Her and I share similar backgrounds. We're both like creatives. We both love art. We both uh, are in the community, helping community, doing community work. So it's really cool to have that interest in finding out later in life that I have a half sister in, in, in Oakland, um, which I found out when I was like, I think 35 or 36 or so. I'm 40 now. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, and so my father, my biological father and I uh, know of each other and know that we both exist, but don't have a relationship. Like I don't, uh, I don't reach out to him when I need anything. I don't like have conversations. I don't, I barely talk to him as you, as you, as you know, and you hear, but he knows I forgave him. You know, he knows that I forgave him. He knows that he did what he had to do. He was young. You know, he felt like he wasn't in the right situation and he made a decision and that's okay. 
and it's okay for it's it's when i i truly believe that things happen for a reason and he made a decision to start his own life so that he can find out what he needed for himself because he have he has two children less later that's that's wonderful you know i have two i have two half brothers sisters that live in lowell as well and they're two wonderful people you know and my they were fortunate to have the better side of my father where he was uh, supportive took care of them gave them everything they needed you know and that's great because two people are living better lives now so i forgive him um and that's the relationship i have he learned about me getting the job at cma as well and stuff like that and we've been in the communications a couple of times since i started here but other than that that's it in terms of my uh my sister's uh father uh it's funny that you asked this question because as i'm getting you know when i re i realize as, as i'm getting older that i've picked up some uh some traits that he had shown to us when i was younger for example he's very uh frugal in terms of money like he doesn't just throw his money away at things he's very frugal and kind of uses it wisely and invests it and i have that kind of um, personality he makes coffee every single morning he does not want to spend money on coffee he makes it every single morning and i find myself doing that every single day for a long time now um and he just like is uh he when he first met my mom he had long hair so just what I'm having right now, people that can't see is uh, you can envision that he has, I had long hair like he did. Um, I, I just, uh, but in terms of us being in touch with each other, I see him more than I see my biological father, you know, because my sisters are, are pretty much in touch with him all the time. Um, and he lives in Lowell as well. And he went, unfortunately, he went through some, a couple of tragic events too with, uh, he, he got married once before and she passed away. And then he married again and now have a child with a second with his other wife and but my sisters stay in touch with him he came to our my wedding um, four years ago which was very awesome and he had just the biggest smile on his face uh and so yeah i stay in touch with him i don't go see him as as much as i should um and um but i do i do appreciate what he had offered us um in the 10 years that he was in our lives so it's 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 really uh, amazing that you're able to just navigate and understand the roots of uh, of the parental figures in your life, right? And uh, especially with the father figures um, that that either raised or didn't raise you. Um, I was just talking with my friend Amy Lee, who I just interviewed. She's a Vietnamese American author, and she's a dear friend of mine. And you know, she was just talking about her mother passing recently, and then having to come to terms with her biological father who had left her and her mother when they were very young and he started his own second family and she talked about the fact that she had spent years and years avoiding him and and he's now in his 80s and i think that they just started to come to terms with their past and but i think for her she had to understand the roots of his pain in order to kind of be guided as to why uh, he was traumatized and why he made the decisions he made and and the consequences that befell on to his family so to her family and I think what you share is is unique uh, but also sadly common too among our refugee population where there's so many hidden family secrets that are 
uh, shameful that we end up not finding out until into our adult lives, and we end up finding out the hard way. It either forces us to re-examine or it forces us into bitterness. There's a lot that goes into uh, learning about your family's past and how they came to the decisions that they made. How did they become abusive? Where did that roots come into play? Um, sometimes I've actually thought about my own father, how similar I am to him. We both have a love for politics. We both have a love for being outspoken when we need to be. Um, we both are very suspicious and we're guarded people. Um, I'm similar to my mom in the sense that I can be very gregarious. I can be very uh, generous too. So, I mean, I have the best in both sides of my parents as we all do. Um, I would like to get more into, as you were talking about it, this earlier into the, uh, this episode here, uh, you talked about the love for working in the community. Uh, what is it about CMWA Lowell besides being a recipient of that service, but what is it about this particular work that really attracted you and to become an executive director? Because um, I'm going into my master's for my for nonprofit management and working with these organizations, these agencies, especially um, that are immigrant refugee centered is no easy task. It's a lot of thankless labor, the hours that go way beyond what you're getting paid for. It's requires you to do more for the community that you may not necessarily be efficient with. I mean, this is a this is not an easy work here, but I, I'd like to know what is it about this particular work that really drew you in in the first place and what made it to be your investment in your professional and uh, personal life? Thank you, Randy, for such a great question. And um... You know, it's, uh, I, I, I want to give some context before I get to why I, I love my job so much. Um, as, 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 the, as you're listening to and learning about some of my personal history growing up uh, as a Khmer person, um, my family and I received a lot of support from organizations like CMA and the community and nonprofits. And um, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, uh, when I was talking about that whole thing between gangs and between Southeast Asians and the Latinx and Hispanic community. Um, the only way that I was, my brother and I was able to stay out of trouble and not getting engaged with gangs was uh, nonprofit programs, after school programs. You know, we, uh, we would find ourselves attending these after school programs and meeting each other, meet other young people, in particular boys, we were part of the Adam Project, which is a smaller program, the Big Brother Big Sisters program. That was located in the downtown and we would get together we would go on field trips we would go camping go hiking uh we would um on even though we we didn't come from a, a well-off family and we were poor ourselves but we did recognize that there were people that were living much less than us and so on thanksgiving and stuff we would help serve dinners to the homeless uh, we would do things that would open up our eyes and current situation to something that's much larger than who we are as individuals and people and um, and um, being part of that group, we were able to help, be, you know, be part of the first ever Dance for Peace event. Dance for Peace is an annual youth program or event that brings together about a thousand young people um, to celebrate peace and not um, violence. And um, I remember my, my friends and I, we were part of a breakdancing team when we were younger. 
we performed at like city hall we performed at like these small jams and stuff and so those were the things that kind of kept me busy and kept me out of trouble and um and then as i and and as i got older when i was 20 when i received when i was part of the cmaa's community employment service program i don't know if the audience knows this but i have three daughters my first one is turning 20 in march um my second one is three and my last one is one and the one that's turning 20 i had her when i was 20. and um when i had her i was in a very tough situation so um since my my father my my stepfather or sister's father left us we moved around low like literally 10 times never having a strong foundation never having a strong home and um and uh when when i had my daughter i uh i was in a situation where i had to take care of her by myself and we got kicked out of our apartment so i was living in my friend's basement uh, for a few months. It wasn't legal. So we weren't supposed to be living in the basement, but that was the only place I can go I was living there with my brother and my few months old baby. And um, and CMA, you know, came in and it gave me a chance to apply for this position. Also temporarily placed me in a job where I would never thought I would be doing, you know. When UTEC was listed as a, an employer, they were looking for a street worker, someone that is like can go to the street, talk to gang involved youth and tell them that there's resources out there that you know you don't have to be involved in this stuff. You can you can you can you can get jobs, you can do work training, you can play basketball, you can break dance, you can play pool right after school. No need to get involved with gang stuff. And that just at the age of 20 just, just personally connected with me when I had when this job opportunity came up. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta sign up for this program. There's no, it's, it's, I related with it. I can connect with it. I have experience. I can go to the community and talk to people that's engaged in gangs. And so um, I signed up, I was approved, met with the executive director of UTEC and he saw something in me and gave me an opportunity. And then CMAA paid for my salary for about six months. And when I turned 21 and six months later, uh, UTEC took over my salary. And I stayed full-time staff for 12 years. And when I turned 21, I actually received training on how to work with young people, uh, giving them proper uh, um, trainings, IDPs, uh, opportunities for them to grow to productive uh, community members in Lowell. And uh, stayed with that job for, for a long, long time. And so um, under the wing of the CEO, um, I learned how he ran an organization, how he built relationships, how he raised money, how he used partnerships to build growth, not just with youth tech, but with the whole community. And, um, and then when back in 2000 and I believe 13, I decided to leave that organization to do something different. And so I actually uh, went to work at a small business for a year and a half or two as the, uh, as a marketing designer kind of person. Cause I have, I love art. I'm a left-hand person, I train. So I like, I play music, I do art, I do all these things, right? And, um, and, um, and I had the opportunity to work at this job for a year and a half. I did it, did it well, and then um, realized that I missed community work. I missed it so much. I was like, ah, oh, gosh, this is freaking boring. I wanna do something different. I wanna go back to the community. I wanna help people again. And so um, CMA came up, the executive director role came up. To be honest with you, Randy, I did not jump at the opportunity. Hell no. Because I heard a lot of shit that took place in this organization. I was like, do I, am I ready for that? 33, 34 year old ready to take, take, take the helm of an organization that has so much baggage, uh, negative baggage. And, um, 
And so I like did not go for it. Um, my then girlfriend, now wife, Liana, she encouraged me actually. She was like, love, um, you love Lowell a lot. You love Lowell, you love people, you love seeing the potential in people, you love to grow people and giving them opportunity because you got it yourself. And, um, and I talked to my mentors and they were all like, Savannah, you, it doesn't hurt. It does not hurt to try out for this position because if you don't get it, you don't get it. But if you get it, that means you have an opportunity to build your own, to rebuild the organization. You have an opportunity to build a new team. You have an opportunity to build a new culture to kind of create a path for it. And I was like, okay, fine, fine, whatever it is. And so a month and a half later, I submitted my cover letter and my resume and I was asked to be interviewed. And I remember being interviewed by Bopa, Evan, and another person, Virak. And they were all board members. And um, I told them, I was like, you gave me an opportunity to interview me, but you've seen my resume. My qualifications for this role does not even meet. I, I don't have 50% of the qualifications for this position. But if you, as the board of directors of this organization, give me a chance to be the next executive director, I can guarantee you that I will work my ass off to make sure that this organization will go to the direction that the community wants it to be. And that will help lead the way with my new team. And, um, and from that moment on, they, they saw something as well and they gave me a chance. And um, when I started back in June of 2014, um, we, uh, we, were, we had about three, four, three and a half staff or so, um, about $300,000 annual budget. And um, this past year, we just finished our auditing and we are at 890,000. Um, with about uh, nine to 10 full-time equivalent staff with a, a lot of part-time staff and, and teachers and volunteers and stuff like that. And so we've, uh, we've grown tremendously in the last few years. And the reason why I love community work, um, Randy, and to be just like um, transparent is that um, my life, my, my personal mission in life is to give people the opportunity to grow and to live their better selves. And right now, particularly young people, we just had our biggest gala of the year this past Friday. We met, we met our fundraising goal. We surpassed it. Um, the whole organization was run by the staff and young people. Like the adults stepped to the side and we gave the microphone to the youth. The adults held the speaker for the microphone so that they can run the organization the way they see fit, the way they felt proud of, the way they want the community members to know about. And so when, when, when the event was going on, and I'll be happy to share a link with you later so you can watch it and don't, you don't have to watch the whole thing, but it's pretty cool. Um, the young people were able to take the work that we've did, that, we, that we've been doing and share it in a way where it tells a story from their perspective. And um, they created videos, they did auction items, they raised money. Oh, they, um, they just like blew my mind. They had, they had live performances. And so um, as the director of this organization, as I was watching that event, like this is exactly the kind of organization that has been, I've been dreaming and thinking about for a long time. It's a place where people are given their own individual power to not only live their, their best lives, but to also provide opportunities for other people to live their best lives as well. Um, my opening remark for the event was focused on family. And, you know, as you can probably sense from, from me as a person, I, I love my children, I love my immediate family. Uh, one thing I said was that 
anybody that ever gets involved with the CMA family will get everything they need to live there to make sure that their family uh, lives a good life. And so, um, yeah, and that's why I love community work. I just like, it's not about me. It's, it's about the people that, that is engaged in our circle. And it's about seeing people smiling. It's about seeing people become citizens. It's about people voting. It's about people being able to pay the bills on time. It's about people securing a good job to raise their families. It's about people buying all their homes for the first time. All of these examples that I've given are programs that we provide at CMAA and that, um, and that we just like, you know, I just, I'm just really, I love my work. I, I, I mean, that's the best that I can explain, Randy. And I work for my heart, honestly. And I just like, before I had my two youngest kids, I was like at CMAA eight in the morning and leaving eight at night. You know, it's just like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Why are you here so early? Why are you here so late? Go home. Um, but you know, my kids were born to make sure they balance me. Um, but I can guarantee you that if I didn't have any children right now, I'd probably be living out of this office. So, um, but. I love my work and I really, that's why I really appreciate you, Randy, because you, 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 this moment, you gave me a chance to tap deeper into my heart and my soul mm. and like why I love this work so much. And I just really appreciate you do that. You know, you, you earlier you talked to me about like, I'm not a good, like audio person. I can't mix sound. I can't, but that's not, your show is not about that. Your show is about giving people a chance to share their personal worth. And you, you, with your personal worth, you're giving people other people personal worth. So thank you, Mandy. Oh, thank you for sharing this incredible work that you're doing for CMAA Lowell. I, I, I'm really glad to learn more about your organization on a deeper level and why this resonates with you on such a, on such a, again, personal level. And, and you know, I been thinking about this a lot too especially this year with the 45 year mark of the beginning of the Khmer Rouge the end of the Vietnam and Laos civil war and the beginning of the mass migration into America and other western countries from our uh, from our folks but you know our adult survivors of the Khmer Rouge are now aging into retirement as we all know and and also a lot of them have now passed away um, but what do you think about what do you think about people like yourself who are now the caretakers of our family's legacy? Because I know for your organization, you're now making room for the youths for a long time. And this has been ex the experience of a lot of Cambodian organizations across the U.S. And I don't mean this to sound like I'm really shaming the elders and, and I'm really not. I, I just want to be very upfront that there has been a lot of friction, a lot of generational conflicts, um, and and also for a lot of elders, when they have been in these positions, it's hard for them to give the keys, to trust us, to hand over the keys for that transition, mm -hmm. because it's their legacy too, that we're trying to honor, that we're trying to protect and recognize in the greater part of our society where it has been silenced for many years. And this is where, you know, having power in our community, whether it's in legislative offices, whether it's in corporate or nonprofit work, this is where we are in the position to now um, bring these stories to the surface, right? And so I wonder about, about looking back as you see these elders that are now getting older and unfortunately dying and, and that there are still more stories to capture uh, before they're gone. And time is, again, as I've mentioned, 
in past episodes, it's not on our side. This is the time to initiate these conversations and to initiate the healing, mending of wounds between uh, these generations while uplifting the younger voices who are going to one day uh, be in that position to be that you're in or that I'm in or other folks are in. I I just kind of wonder about uh, being the caretakers of our family's legacy, if you can share that. Yeah, yeah, that's another, oops, yeah, I thought it was on me. That's another wonderful question, uh, Randy. And um, I guess it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about pride, about being proud of who we are as our people. And whether you're Vietnamese, whether you're Cambodian, whether you're you're Laotian, um, being proud of who we are as our own people and being able to understand and learn about our history and culture in the most organic and um, influential way. I think what's really important to uh, to value is honoring the people that came before us. Um, really, just like thanking the first generation of, of refugees that came to this country to be able to build something like the CMAA or the Kim, or the Cambodian Museum in in Chicago or the Cambodian American Association of Greater Philadelphia or like other organizations that exist uh, in our country, like truly and genuinely thanking them because they, I can't, but we took the baton for some of us that were able to, took the baton from something that was completely much harder for them to build back then. Can you imagine 1984 trying to raise funds for a community that you don't really know about and you're getting funds from the government? Yes, for sure. But like the, 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 the ideology of nonprofit operations, um, how to manage money, how to, ba- how to create mission statements, how to create vision, what the heck is a 501c3, 501c4? All these things that they all had to learn um, to be able to help our people um, in the beginning. They they took a risk themselves, not by only, well, they didn't take a risk. They took a risk by not only resettling in a new community, but to also do something about it, right? They did something about the, the, the issues that they were seeing that's taking place in our community. They started organizations. And so really just honoring them and valuing what they've done for us and also continuing as which you did in good terms is like they're, they're going away, but continuing to value who they are and what they bring. Um, because they, they, because their situation and their experience paved the way for us as the next generation of people that are running organizations or leader of uh, being in leadership roles. Um, they made it a little easier for us. Um, and provided more opportunities for us to be to take that baton. Um, and so honoring them is really important. I think capturing their stories is really important as well. I know that there have been uh, some projects that's taken place already in terms of remembering some of the many stories that our elders had went through. Um, whether I, I think there was a project in California, I think they want, there was one in Canada. Um, but how do we collectively come together and capture their stories as much as possible and create a digital archive and make that available to the community. Because the, the difference between what makes us different and unique about the Khmer genocide, if using Cambodians as an example, is that people that were affected by the genocide may not have access to historical documents, uh, may not have access to footage, may not have access to photos or birth certificates and things like that. But what's alive is memories and stories, and 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 how do we how do we tap into the, our older members' memories 
and capturing as much information as possible because their experience is so valuable. Something that we did very recently in the last few years is that we invited older members of our community to our after school program and have them share their experiences growing up in Cambodia before the genocide and after. Um, how the country was like, have them read poems, have them read stories, have them teach the class. So provide, creating a space where they can like be with young people while young people also wanting and to learn our culture and history from them as well. So being able to continue that kind of space is really important for us to bridge that intergenerational gap. Um, to even, and, and you can see this too, Randy, and folks in my generation, like 35, uh, in our 30s and early 40s, we're recognizing that we wanna, we wanna, we, we wanna preserve our culture. So we're like intentionally putting our kids in the Khmer classes intentionally putting our kids into dance lessons intent and intentionally celebrating you know you when you when you all had an event for the museum a few months ago and i and i joined you virtually like there's all these new generations of people like yourself on the board like trying to continue the story like you're already doing it you know like you're you're asking me this question about what it thoughts about but you and your team are doing that yourselves in chicago you're continuing that legacy you're continuing that work you don't have to right as 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 a as a as a radio show host as a story as a as a, as a bridge of stories as a bridge of culture as a bridge of people you can use your sundays or whatever time you put into the museum and do, and take care of yourself but you stepped out on your own on your own and made a decision personally to get engaged with an organization that helped so many people before because you see the value in that you already have that and how do we get more people like yourself to share your story, to share your experience, to share your worth? And that's why um, and that's why like I'm engaged. And and how do we get more people like us to do that and to feel that? And 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 an example of continuing our culture and continuing our history is by people like yourselves providing opportunities to share stories and to share experiences because something it's sharing stories is healing. Sharing stories is is about um recognizing and connecting with that experience. Sharing stories is about, is, is knowing and understanding that, that, that a lot of people have gone through the same situation and being able to be together as that, at that moment. Um, so yeah, and so there are things that are happening right now that are, that are definitely intentionally uh, keeping our culture alive, keeping our older members, community members alive and keeping the stories alive. And, and Banmi Chronicles is just, is one of them. You know, and I keep going back to that. I'm serious, Randy. Like, like, and and I'm not, and I'm not being biased. That I do listen to a lot of your shows, <laughs> and like binged on it too. Um, but like, not too many people are doing what you're doing now. Not a lot. But if you if people are listening to this and hear the compassion that's coming from your voice and your heart and your soul, and from your guests' voices, hearts and souls, I hope that that empowers and sparks something within them to do something else as well, to be engaged, to, 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 to connect, to volunteer your time, to become board members, to give, to give monetary donations. You know, we're doing things right now from our own personal will so that we in hopes in return that more people will get engaged and will continue our traditions and our culture and our stories and memories alive. So. Yeah, no, thank you for the kind words. And I really appreciate this once again, brother. And you know, like, I think about like, but there's also other Kamai American podcasters now. I mean, you look at Hala Chloy. I remembered when I first got Aman uh, earlier this year, like he had never been interviewed ever. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, Bonnet is his real name. But I was like, Bonnet, it's like, you, you mean to tell me for the past 10 years, you've been a YouTuber, 
and social media influencer for the Kamai community, no one has ever interviewed you. And then, like, next thing, you know, he actually makes his own podcast, which I cannot be more proud of him. And then there are, then there is uh, Jasmine and Melissa uh, Yuan uh, from uh, Two American Sisters, who I absolutely adore and just incredibly supportive. So I also want to shout those two people out specifically. Uh, but uh, before I let you go, I would like to ask you, uh, what are you preparing for in the 2021 year, and where can we follow you or the work of CMAA Lowell? Yeah, thank you for uh, so um, so. Woo. So CMAA is in the middle of a strategic plan right now. So we've like sent out community surveys in Khmer and Spanish and English to get feedback from our community about our work that we're doing and and what what else can we do to do more to continue to serve our community. Um, when I first took this job, I wanna. My team and I want to move this agency towards the direction where the whole community wants to see it, or at least many, as many people as possible, like a collective voice. So we're in the middle of a, a strategic plan, collecting the, the, um, the data from that. And then ultimately, um, before, before I leave as an ED, because I believe leadership should change um, to provide opportunities for other people to come after me, is that I would love to expand our building, whether it's a new building, whether it's a going to a different city or town in Massachusetts, uh, expanding a footprint to not just serve the Khmer community, but to serve other communities as well. CMAA is seen in Lowell as a, a template in, in terms of helping immigrants and refugees to help resettle and acclimate into the country. And how do we take our experience and share that with other people that are going through similar situations uh, today? How do we take what we have and share that and make sure people are, are uh, have, have, um, have the uh, experiences to work off of, have the templates, have the documents, have the leadership, have the, the voices to help guide them to do more bigger and better things. And so I really envision the organization to, to expand physically, but also, uh, intentionally to other groups besides my Americans. I also believe that we want to continue the work of uh, remembering and retaining our um, history from our older members, uh, bridging intergenerational, uh, creating intergenerational opportunities, um, but to also, as I talk about this a lot, is to make sure our young people uh, can get everything they need to be either one of us today. You know, a strong, a strong podcast person, a strong executive director person, like our young people is the future leader. And they are leaders right now because they're taking initiatives to do things that I didn't even think I was doing do it as, as a young person. But how do we really give that opportunity to them? Uh, so that really is there. Um, continuing to build on the Khmer community. Uh, we've had the opportunity to bridge a lot of fractions in our in Lowell, and how do we continue to do that? To be being a main organization, um, mending those uh, mending those uh, experiences, and making sure that we are very very proud of who we are as people. I mean, celebrating that, and um, and also you know I just anyone that wants to get in get involved with CMA, I want to learn about our work. Um, we are very social media driven um, but myself i'm social media driven as well i do a lot of posting a lot of sharing and i think it's really important that i i, I am open um for people to see because i don't know i mean i i leave with my genuine self and i just want to make sure that people um understand who i am and why i do the work that i do in the way that i do it um so you can find me personally on on all social media so it's savannah Bow 
Um, Instagram is S-O-V as in Victor A, an, an A, P as in Power, O-U-V. Same thing for LinkedIn and same thing for Twitter and same thing for Facebook. It's Savannah Bow, S-O-V-A-N-N-A. Last name is P-O-U-V. And in terms of CMAA, um, you can find us at Twitter, which is CMAA Lowell. You can find us on LinkedIn at CMAA Lowell as well. Um, Facebook, same thing, CMAA Lowell. Um, and our website is cmaalowell.org. Um, if you reach out to me on any of my social media platforms, I will get back to you and make sure that you're heard. Uh, I, I recognize that um, that when people take the opportunity and effort to reach out to somebody, that it's just very respectful to get back to them when I mean, mm. you can. Thank um, you so much once again for for really uh, for being on here today, and also for really spending your day talking about your experiences, your journey the work that you're doing with CMWA Law. I also want to make sure that people do follow that work. I think, think it's a really important work, even if it does not affect you, even if you don't live in law. I think it's important to learn the other works of uh, not just the Khmer American community, but also of other Asian communities and what that work entails. What does it look like for those who are interested in going into nonprofit work? What does it entail? Uh, and, but really, Again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And thank you so much for being so supportive of my work. And I am have been a big fan of what you've been doing uh, since I've known you. And I look forward to hearing more about that work as you progress uh, beyond CMWA for yourself, but also uh, for the community members who are driving this work. And uh, yeah, great work. And I look forward to uh, talking with you soon again, brother. Uh, thank you, Randy. Thanks again for giving me a chance to share. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.